Welcome to Finding My Religion. My name is Miles Phelps. A quick trigger warning before we jump into this next episode. We talk about the loss and death of a child, so please take care when listening. Also, this episode's a bit on the longer side, so we're not going to be doing a preview at the end, but it was such an impactful conversation for me, so please stick with it. All right, we are back. Uh, I have a really special guest today, um, someone that we've actually tried to record this thing three times so far, so this is the third time, um, and I'm really happy that I've gotten to talk with this person more than once because uh you're pretty pretty cool pretty cool person katie thanks for doing this for the for the third time oh thank you thank you for having me and i know technology is the worst so it is Uh, i hope this works this time i'm I'm sure we'll just try again we'll just try again again. we'll just go for four and five if we have to um but katie piles joining me um yeah we, we recorded this the first time and it like got lost on the internet somewhere and then the second time we got like almost all the way through and then at a really crucial part in the conversation it got cut off so here we are again we're just gonna we're gonna we're gonna try it um but first of all how have you been i think it's been uh at least a month or so since we've talked yeah yeah i've been good i um started a new job like right like the week that we recorded the second time so oh wow how's it going really good i like it a lot so that's it's been really nice to enjoy my work <laughs> yeah <laughs> which and I, you know i i've liked like i'm working in my chosen field so it's it was good before but it's way better now so that's awesome well i can't wait to talk about that because it all kind of wraps into to what the conversation is that we're going to get into it does, yeah <laughs> um well cool well let's let's jump into it uh so katie where we always start is what's your faith what's your religion at this point in your life yeah so i am catholic that is both my faith and my religion. Um, I know one of the things I said the first time we recorded was for better, for worse. Um, And that still stands. Yes. Catholic for better, for worse. Um, You know, I believe in Jesus. I believe in, you know, the church and yeah. So I'm chosen. I've chosen to, it's the way I've chosen to live my life. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about, how that came to be did you guys grow up and it's honestly like i i forget a little bit about this part so this is perfect for me uh did you guys grow up in a catholic household did you have any siblings talk to me about that yeah so i have two older sisters um and we were like a catholic family not like we're a catholic family uh we went to mass every week and um during lent there's like special days we went during those days too so like ash wednesday um we did all the liturgical stuff we i found out in college that there are two types of catholic families who attend regularly there are the kind that don't go on vacation and the kind that do and we were the don't go on vacation kind so we're like middle of the road as far as like devout (laughs) um yeah yeah we prayed um at home my parents both prayed with me um you know and it was just woven into the fabric of our lives it was never um I don't want to say this in a bad way. It just like wasn't like a big deal. Like it wasn't super present all the time. Um, but it was a part of like our rhythms as a family. 
Um, so I found that very comforting. I was a very, very, very spiritual child and um, didn't have a lot of social norms. So I would ask my priest questions after mass when he was like trying to go take a nap. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, why is it a man and not a woman? And he was like, what are you talking ah. about? Like, <laughs> and um, I remember one time he is, he was very funny and, but also like to say, I don't know that I would say this to a six year old, but I was like, no, why can't a woman be a priest? And he was like, you're lucky you can vote. And I was like, all oh, right, geez. cool. <laughs> oh my God. He meant it like, I mean, he said yeah. it in a way and everyone right. laughed kind of because he i mean i'm sure he didn't really want to get in that with a six-year-old so right. and he was very old so i think it was like You're something he thought about yeah i know catholics right no it, it like that's so that like um i was never afraid about my faith and i never felt um it never felt like forced to me. Like I always felt very comfortable in my environment. And so like that didn't come off to me as like, a, okay, I can't ask questions. That was right. like, Oh, he's not able to answer that question to me. And there's more to the world than maybe I understand. And then I also had really good parents who would take time to sit with me and talk to me about things. So um, what's, what were yeah. some of the things that they would talk to you about your parents? Uh, they would talk to me about, well, my grandma died when I was really young, like seven, mm -hmm. she had cancer and it was really quick and really ugly. Um, so we talked about death and we talked about faith and its role in our lives. And, um, you know, I, some of my like earliest memories of my dad is like, he would take really intentional time with each of us. And like, we would, I remember being like eight or nine and like sitting out on our front porch and just like looking at the stars. We lived like unincorporated Sycamore. So um, like it was a cul-de-sac that a farmer had like parceled off. And so like there, it was very dark. Um, there weren't any streetlights so we could look at the stars and it was really beautiful. And we would just talk about things like anything. I would ask questions. He would answer them to the best visibility. And like, I just always felt really safe. Mm -hmm. So and valued and that's, that's again awesome. for sure yeah yeah i mean i a lot of well i wouldn't say a lot but i feel like that's not maybe typical but uh it's awesome that you had that experience where you could just chat with your dad yeah. over under under some stars like that's, that's pretty beautiful <laughs> sounds moment. idyllic doesn't it <laughs> yeah it does it does yeah um so talk to me about like high school, grade school? I mean, did, did you ever question your faith? Were there any more questions that you had? I mean, because it sounds like you always had questions, but your faith really was never shaken. Like you're never like, oh, why am I doing this? It was just like part of what and who you were. Yeah. Yeah. Very deeply ingrained in who I am as a person, for sure. And like, especially getting the chance to reflect on this so much in the past couple of months, like I really like i i don't know that i ever seriously had a situation where my faith was like shaken as a child and an adolescent sure. i definitely wasn't engaged all the time like you know middle school and just like i was like oh i don't care about this uh this is boring and i hate it uh but i went to like a summer camp and that was a big like um like conversion experience for me and i had a really good youth group so i had like really good friends and like that's not a given obviously but like the friends that i had from that from those experiences were really solid 
And um, yeah, it was just easy, you know, like it, it was easy. So it was some, and it was something that I had that like personal connection and relationship to the divine. So I like, it was very life-giving for me. Um, And I don't know, you're, you're a teenager, so things are a little simpler and also your feelings are a little bigger. So um, it was easy for me to engage and I had a really supportive and healthy environment. So I didn't have a lot of big questions, um, not until like college. Um, yeah. Talk about that. I mean, cause I feel like college for you was, was pretty, I mean, for a lot of people pretty significant. Yeah. I mean, cause you're, you're starting to be, you think you're an adult in high school, yeah. like when you graduate and then you get to college and you're like, Oh shit. Like I, I'm maybe I'm not. And you're still learning. And yeah. then you graduate college and you're like, Oh my God, what a baby we all were. <laughs> yeah. <Yep>. But, <laughs> but talk to me about that experience for you. Yeah. I definitely thought that I was like, okay, here's a chance to like reinvent myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's only two other people from my high school that went to my college and, um, I was like, Oh, who am I going to, you know, really exploring myself and who I wanted to be and what I thought I wanted versus what I actually wanted. Something just fell over. It's fine. No, it's all good. Uh, so I, yeah. So I thought a lot about that and tried to take that opportunity to reinvent myself a little bit in the college. And um, I just, I had done the religion thing and I was just kind of like, well, what happens if I don't like, who am I going to be um, outside of this? And we'd had some family trauma that summer before I left for college. And it was like, I didn't know how to deal with that. You know, my parents didn't really know how to help me deal with that. Um, mental health wasn't a thing that was like talked about at that point in time, really, especially in my family. So I just kind of like drank a lot and did whatever I felt like doing. And I felt like shit. So I, you know, during that time, I had still been attending mass. I think just having the habit, it was like, it was really hard for me to not go. <laughs> like it was a good anchor for my week. Um, so, you know, I was, I was still going to mass and um, I had some friends, like it was a Catholic campus. I went to Loris college in Dubuque. And so there was mass every week on campus. There were, um, there were chapels that I could go and pray in. And there was just a lot. Um, there's a lot available spiritually. Um, so it was an easy thing to dive back into. Um, when I was ready and I was surrounded by people who were going to mass. So it was easy just to like join the crowd, even though I wasn't feeling it. Um, but I think that made a big difference in my ability. Like when I was ready to reenter into like, uh, spirituality and religion, like I had all of the tools right at my fingertips. So, um, and like I said, I had always been like spiritual as a child. Like I connected really easily with the idea of God, you know, it was, it's just always been something that's been simple for me. Um, Why do you think that is? Cause I, I, cause I don't feel like that's typical. I mean, cause it, it definitely wasn't for me. Um, but why do you think it, it just clicked for you as a kid? Was it your, the support system that you had? Was it your yeah. priest? Like what, what was it about it? That I just... don't know. I have no idea. I, and I think about that a lot. And like, I think, um, the Bible talks about like, faith being a gift of the spirit so i don't know if it's just like something that i have but i don't know that that's what that is like i think maybe that's something i don't understand very well and i'm just trying to make sense of my experience um i don't know i don't know because it then it gets into a whole bunch of like semantic questions for me about like well then why doesn't everybody get that Mm. like why only some people have this and some people don't like i it kind of sends me down a rabbit hole so i don't know i think I think it probably had a lot to do with my environment at home. Um, 
And like for me personally, I think anybody, like it's such a unique experience, religion and faith. It's as different as we are. Um, so I, I don't mean this as like, oh, if everybody does this, they will have a spiritual child. I think I just, yeah, I just, I had a very big imagination. Um, and I was just really open to what the world had to offer me. Um, I spent a lot of time outside as a kid. I loved to be running around, hated to wear shoes, like just, you know, barefoot and free for most of my childhood. And I think that primed me for those things. That's Um, awesome. Yeah, I don't know. So when I was in college, it was easy for me to be like, okay, I feel horrible. And I haven't felt this bad in my whole life. And there's a lot going on here. And it's not just the fact that I'm not engaging in my faith. Um, But I, um, there is, so, so mass is a liturgical like environment. So for people who like maybe aren't familiar with that, like, you enter into a Catholic church and there's a long aisle and there's pews and there's statues and art and stained glass. And then, um, and the very front of the church is, uh, an altar. And then usually behind the altar, there's something called a tabernacle. And so that tabernacle is where, um, Catholics keep the host, keep the Eucharist. And we believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood and soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. So that's like the holiest place that we can go here on earth. Um, And so I would enter into the church and I would feel very calm. And so like, not only was I connecting to my childhood and to my family in a time where I was really insecure, my family felt unstable. Um, I was also like experiencing a piece that was bigger than that. It was like, I don't know if you can remember like being a really little kid and like just being wrapped up in like a hug from your mom. Yeah. That's what it felt like. Yeah. And so like that place to go and to be soothed and to feel loved and to connect with something that had been so important to me um, as a child and younger teenager, (laughs) still like a 19 years old, was like dumb as a potato, but the, (laughs) um, you know, like I had that another, um, another part of the Catholic faith is confession. So that's a sacrament in which like we go into a private space and you can either like sit face to face with the priest or you can go like kind of privately behind a screen. Um, and you share in ways you failed. Um, and you know, like probably a more accessible term would be like sins, like, okay, here's where I've sinned. And there's a whole formula that you follow, which really helps me. I need the formulas. It helps hmm. me to be able to relax. I have a lot of anxiety. Um, if I can plug into a formula that helps me to settle my mind so that I can like really engage with what's, with what's happening. So something as structured as that is really helpful for me. Can you talk about what that formula is or is it different depending on the situation? For confession, it's always the same. So you go into the confessional or like, depending on where you're at, sometimes it's just like sitting next to a priest on a pew, like, or like I've like flagged people down and been like, hey, <laughs> help me. <Yeah. laughs> so like, could be like, uh, as you're walking, like it, it, the environment can change. Um, but you just say, oh, well, I think there's, well, okay, I take it back. There is a bunch of different ways to approach it. Um, but we're taught a formula of words so that we can sort of like, it kind of takes away the the fear. And so like, I could just say, hey, it's been X amount of days, months, years uh, since I've been in confession. 
And here's my sentence. Here's where I failed. Um, I was taught that we talk about where we failed ourselves, where we failed other people, and where we failed God. Um, just like as a quick, we call it an examination of conscience. So I just kind of reflect on where I failed and I share that. And if there's anything really pressing, usually that's my, what I'm going is because something is like, I've really messed up and I need to, right. like, I need to confess it. Um, and so I will, will say, and especially this thing. So I kind of like circle the drain a little bit. <laughs> like here's, you know, I told a little lie and like, I kind of fudge my time sheet and like, you know, and also this big whatever, like I have been absolutely horrible to my sister, you know, as a child or like my husband now as a married person. The um so and then the priest listens and sometimes he'll ask clarifying questions. Um, not often though. They usually just listen and they say, Okay, thanks for being here. Um, you know, thanks for your confession. And then they offer something called absolution. Um, well, first you have to like and th then you have to apologize. You say something along the lines of, I'm sorry for everything I've done. And I really want to do better. I'm going to do penance. Penance is like the idea of reparation. So I've done something horrible or just kind of like generally like run of the mill bad, just like not great. I failed. How can I make it better? That's what penance is supposed to be. Um, so sometimes you'll have to go and do something. Once I had to write a letter to my mom, it was awful. Mm. <laughs> I know. And he said I didn't have to give it to her, but I had to write it. Sure. And so I don't know that I ever gave it to her, but I did write it. And it was, yeah, I don't know. It was very hard for me, <laughs> uh, but it was good. It was good for me. It was just hard. Um, yeah. And, but most of the time it's like, say Hail Mary, you know, say a couple of our fathers. And then they offer absolution. So they say, um, you know, by ministry of the church, I grant you pardon and peace, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ and um, then you are forgiven in the eyes of the church. And I believe in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and there's what I didn't know until I was much older is that usually you get a really, really like light penance of like, oh, say, you know, some pray about this. Sometimes it's like, maybe you should offer up some prayers and like any suffering you experience for like cancer patients. Like there's mm -hmm. a way to like, and it's all very like accessible. They're not supposed to get penances that are unable to be completed. Um, so like if it's, so sometimes I once had a priest ask me, he was like, well, is it realistic for you to just like not watch TV for a day or two? And I was like, yeah, I could probably do that. And he's like, okay, well be honest, because if you can't do that, I don't want to ask you to do that. Hmm. Uh, so that, you know, that I've had really like good confessions like that. I've also had some ones that are, I'm just like, all right, well, just give me my absolution so I can leave. Like, right. I, don't, I don't love the advice I'm getting, Yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah, it feels like, um, so that works for you. Do you, mm -hmm. th there's this concept of Catholic guilt yeah. that a lot of times is talked about by people that were, were former Catholics. And I think yeah. it stems from this idea of, of penance. Why, why do you think that that works for you and that it doesn't really lead you down that road of like, oh man, I'm always guilty about whatever it is because I'm yeah. scared of Going you know having to, to face yeah. up to it essentially is what yeah. it is. A couple of things. I had a really good priest as a child who said some crazy things, obviously, as I sure. <laughs> uh, but he loved us mm -hmm. and I felt loved and he knew my name and my parents loved me and they didn't force me to do a bunch of stuff. I went to my first confession in second grade um, and then I didn't go again until I was in middle school. Like 
it was just like my mom had a really bad experience in confession. She said, uh, so she was like, I'm, you don't have to go there. I'm like, yeah. all right, great. So it always felt like a very free choice to me, um, which has been really important. Um, and also, I, I understand what it means to like hurt somebody and to apologize and have that not be enough. Hmm. You know, so I have a background in social work. Uh, so I have a bachelor's in social work and a master's in theology. So that's the whole thing we can talk about if you want to. But yeah, we will. That, okay. <laughs> so that like, um, we talked about in my social work classes, the concept of restorative justice. Um, and so what it means to harm and how we often need to like make reparations. Um, to restore the relationship. And so um, the church, well, people in the church often don't do this well. So I think people get really, really bad teaching and they get wounded, very wounded people in positions where they shouldn't be. Um, so that could be like, well, if you don't do this, you're going to hell and you don't want to go to hell, do you? Like that was never my experience. So I had a freedom that I think a lot of people are robbed of. Um, but yeah, I think I just lost the plot of what I was saying, but anyway, yeah, it makes sense to me. Yeah. No, that I think that, I think you summed it up well. Um, I do want to talk about the intersection between, uh, theology and social work. So talk to me about how you got to the point because so you started within social for social work that seemed like it was always a you know passion of yours um when did the interest in wrapping that into theology with your master's come about like was that something yeah. that was always in the back of your head or did it just hit you one day i well and just the way i engaged with my life my first two years of college was not healthy and so like i had kind of disqualified myself in my own eyes, no one had said this to me, but I felt disqualified from like ministry work. Oh, interesting. Um, because of, yeah. you were like just partying all the time or what? Yeah. yeah. Like, and like, not even just partying because like, I, I mean, I still love to have several drinks. Like that's not yeah. like, I don't really, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like it, it just like a normal person, but the, um, without any alcohol. Right. Depends on issues. But exactly. I think, um, yeah. Yeah. So there's, the, it was more than that. I, I was deep, deeply wounded and I acted out by just like kind of like throwing up that hurt onto anybody around me. Mm -hmm. And like, I felt a lot of shame because I didn't understand how to connect who I had been with who I was being. Yeah. Yeah. It was really hard for me. And I hadn't, you know, now I've engaged in therapy for a long time, a couple of years, five years. So not that long, but long enough to be able to like reflect and I'm like, like having the access to um, like anti-anxiety and anti-depression medication, like better living through better pharmaceuticals is what we say yeah. in our house. So that's like, that's huge for me. And, um, but I, so I think it was just a lot of things and like trying to make sense of how I was feeling and shame often feels like action. And so if I can shame myself, I have maybe a, a little bit of control where I did it before. Bye. My son is knocking on the window of the office. <laughs> Bye. They're going to school. Oh, nice. 
Okay, bye. Okay, everybody leave. Okay, sorry. It's all good. I thought I was all imagining good. it at first, and then I was like, I think somebody is. <laughs> it's God. He's talking it's God. He's like, hey. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um. So how how do you i think i asked this question the first time we talked and it, it still fascinates fascinates me of being in social work mm-hmm. and also wrapping that into some sort of religious concept because my my wife yeah. uh went to school for social work she's she says she's an atheist yeah. and it's so interesting to me to say like from her perspective like this rejection of a god but still have who she is as a person wrapped up in these social work concepts of, mm-hmm. you know, do no harm, harm reduction, yeah. making sure that everybody's on the same playing field. Yeah. And then you have you on the other hand, who also believes those things, but you're not rejecting God. You've actually embraced it and had it be part of your social work career. How, yeah. how do you square that? Like, how do you, is that interesting for you as well? Or is it just, or is it just me? No, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I like, I don't know how common it is that I like my combination of degrees um, and education, but I, um, yeah, I think coming from the very positive experience with religion, that's helpful. Um, and then like a Christian anthropology is more like, especially in the, I, I can't speak for Christian general, but the Catholic view of the human person. And again, Catholic people don't always like, do a good job at this. So mm-hmm. I want to make that distinction. I'm not trying to like apologize for the horrible things that Catholic people have done and said. Right. There's no apology for that. Um, but the teaching is that like human beings have inherent dignity and worth. And so like that by virtue of our being a person, regardless of ability, regardless of social economic status, regardless of race, religion, any of those things, we are all made in the image of God. And that means that we should take care of each other. And so like, that was always like very important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is still take care of each other like i think that that is one of the main points of there being more than one person is that we're supposed to take care of each other um and so like with social work that is also probably i don't want to say probably my education that was the basis of that too not religious at all my department was not religious and like that was very like it was a smaller department so i had the same three professors for everything and they were wonderful and also, we disagreed a lot hmm. um, on policy implementation, and I also was a teenager and young, right? So I, you know, thought I knew everything. So, right. That, uh, but I remember sitting on my hands a lot um, and just trying not to like. I'm not going to like start a discussion in the middle of this professor trying to like teach me something. Um, so taking what I felt was good and letting myself be taught by people who were very different than me um, was really good for me. Um, and it helped me to see people in a very different way. You know, um, we did, we did all of our social work stuff on based on like a strengths-based model. So you identify strengths and then you scaffold up from there. Um, 
while treating like the multidimensional framework of the human person. So people are physical, they have physical needs, emotional needs, um, community needs, spiritually. Like I, you know, I, again, I didn't look it up. I should, cause I can't really remember it, but the, but the concept is the same. Mm-hmm. There's many different like dimensions of the human spirit and how are we the human person and how are we serving all of those needs and helping everybody um, to have what they need to survive and to thrive. Um, and I saw everybody in my program doing these wonderful things and they have gone on to do wonderful work, policy level work all the way down to like individual therapy. You know, I am so proud of everybody that I was in that program with. Um, and I didn't see anybody serving any of the spiritual needs of the person. And so I thought like, okay, there's a gap and I can fill that gap. Yeah. And so that's, that was the, that's the, like, I think at core why I decided to like go into like a more ministerial position. Also I did it out of spite. <laughs> so <laughs> I could talk about that a little bit if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So I, um, in college, I was dating, um, an evangelical guy who was studying to be a pastor and we fought all the time about theology. And that's where like, I really like discovered my like passion for like an ac- more academic, uh, faith, like learning mm-hmm. more about my faith and the Bible and how that has shaped the world and how it has shaped me and um so i i had a, like a true like desire to learn more that's also true also he kept saying things like well i have a theology degree and you don't so i was like well screw you man like i'm gonna go get a theology degree <laughs> also that's like not a great way to start a debate like i'm smarter yeah. than you <laughs> yeah well yeah i mean we were young and idiots yeah he, he, you reached out to me a couple of years ago and he was like i just want to apologize for everything i didn't said when i was 19 that's and 20. funny that's and I was really like, yeah, funny. you're good. Same. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, like, at least, I mean, you know, yeah. that, that just shows how dumb we are at, yeah. at, at 19, 20, whatever it is. But that's why. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, you don't have a theology sure. degree. You don't, you can't debate me on the same level. Yeah. Field, like said, I know more than you. It. I'm going to, okay, I'm going to cool. go get one. I'm going to get a bigger theology degree than you. <laughs> and I'm going to be better at it than you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so my husband, I met my husband in grad school. And so he's always like. Yeah, that like queen level of spite is how I have my whole family. So I'm really grateful for that guy. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, so it served me well, I think. That's great. Yeah. So it was both and it was I was very motivated because I wanted to win the argument. Um mm-hmm. and I just didn't like being told that I didn't know what I was talking about. So that made me mad. So I learned what I was talking about. And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. Like if we're looking at a Christian worldview, like that framework. Right. This only works if you accept that there is a God and that God is good. Then I'm right. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Yeah. And I, you know, obviously I've like very much calmed down from that place of like self-righteousness. Um, working with people will do that to you. There are a million different ways to be a person. Um, and I am grateful for all the ways in which I have been exposed to. I think people are great. So That's awesome. Yeah. I think that's important um, reflection uh, that just shows the, the growth of, of a person. Yeah. Do you, so, however, I do want to know the pettiness that, that went into this. So uh, looking back through an adult mm-hmm. eyes, what were some of the 
debates that you guys would have from a Catholic versus evangelical perspective, maybe not from the framework of like a 19 year old, but like, I feel like those debates would probably still happen today. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So what, what were those, you know, um, where, where did that friction come from? What were some of the things you talked about? Yeah. Like I was really willing to compromise on a lot of things. Like if Mm -hmm. we're dating and, um, Catholics and evangelicals have this in common, uh, love to just jump right into marriage. So people are like, yeah, I've been dating you for a minute. Let's get married. Um, so, I mean, I think he was more leading that charge than I was. I'm not like a very like warm, fuzzy person usually, but the, um, anyway, so he was like, well, if we're going to get married, like we need to figure this stuff out. And I was like, I mean, okay, like (laughs) I'm 20, but okay, let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we, it was a lot of like, what's a salvation issue? Um, like, what about the Eucharist? What about baptism? What about, um, you know, how do we square our very different perceptions of the world? Ultimately, for me, it came down to like, he really, um, as a Calvinist, although he would not have identified himself as that, I just, my opinion, um, believed that people were at their core bad. Mm. And I believed that people at their core were good. And I wasn't willing to compromise on that. Um, from an adult so, perspective, I think that's what it was. I don't know that I would have said that at the time, though. Right. So from his perspective, you're, you're born sinful into this mm-hmm. world. And so because of that, you need saving from God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Like you um, need to be covered in the blood of God in order to not be damned to hell. Wow. Like, Yeah, that's heavy. That's not for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, so Catholics don't believe that. What What would they say to that? Or what was your perspective? Yeah. How I would summarize that. Um, and I'm sure other, like, there are people who are more fire and brimstone about it, but there's actually, like, um, a heresy called Jansenism. So there's a lot, like, I, I know that people will disagree with what I'm saying. But from my understanding of the church teaching and my experience with the person of God, people were created in some form or fashion. and then something happened that broke the relationship between each other and with God and God couldn't bear to be separated from us and have us separated from each other. So he came down on our level. It says in the, like in the story, in the story of the fall, like that God hand sewed garments for Adam and Eve. That to me speaks of somebody who wants the people who are in this bad situation to know how deeply they're cared for mm-hmm. um, and then set about to fix the breakage. And so like, instead of just like waving a magic wand and resetting everything, he chose to become us so that we could become more like him and we could bridge that gap and we wouldn't be beholden to death. His death. And that doesn't come because we are bad. It comes because we are broken and that God chose to fix us in a certain way um, and to change the fabric of the universe so that we could overcome the biggest bad thing, which is Hmm. death. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's interesting. Very heavy stuff. 
um, yeah. that you guys were debating at 1920. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Cause it, it, <laughs> it, it's, it's cool that you can reflect on who you were and fill in the gaps based on what you've learned yeah. through, through school and just, and just life. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about like what happens after college. So you, you said you met your husband in grad school, you start a family. Um, and what we're leading up to is a pretty traumatic event that happens in, in both your guys' lives. So talk about, you know, the, the beginning of that, you know, the, the, the voice that you heard and all that stuff. Yeah. So I, we had had two children very quickly, um, like 14 months apart, 15 months apart. And I was like at my max. So and I don't know if I shared this the first couple of times, but we also at that time were taking care of um, my husband's brother, my brother-in-law, who mm -hmm. has some special needs and a lot of uh, a lot of needs just in general, very high sure. needs person. Um, There's a lot going on. A lot going on. And I was at my capacity for handling right. things. Um, so I was in therapy for the first time and um, there was um, one of my best friends growing up had put together this like women's conference for a couple of years and she invited me to that. And I was like, all right, like that sounds great. Just like a day to kind of like reflect and connect um, with God. And I, at the very end of that conference of that like weekend, they had us like reflect on like, what's one, like they framed it as like a step of obedience. Like what, did, what do you feel God's calling you to do and how can you walk towards that? Like what's one action you can take? Um, and I like, <laughs> uh, not from me and not anything I would have ever come up with, like the, I felt like I heard like, oh, you should have another baby. And I was like, mm -hmm. that's hilarious. I'm not going to be doing that. Um, <laughs> that's funny though. So I was like, oh, I'll try again. <laughs> but it like, once that seed was planted, like it grew into like a real desire, um, and so it took us a little bit to conceive, you know, I thought it would just happen if I made eye contact too long, um, basically, <laughs> but, but, uh, it took us a little bit. Yeah. So we were like, we were really like, we really felt that like, okay, we really want this baby. By the time we conceived Frankie, we really wanted him. Um, and not that we don't, didn't want our other two, but it's a sure. desire that I hadn't experienced before right, um, right. being so lucky to be able to conceive and carry children. Um, but I, yeah, so we got pregnant. Everything was great. You know, we had some, like a little scare around 13 weeks where I thought I was miscarrying, um, ended up just not being anything, which is weird to me. I like, I was like, <laughs> it should have been a miscarriage. Like I was going in expecting to not see a heartbeat wow. on the ultrasound. Um, and, the, my doctor was like, oh, this is great. This is great news. She like, didn't want to turn on the ultrasound right away so that I wouldn't see that first thing. Yeah. And I was like, no, it's going to be fine. Like, I just don't want to wait. And she was like, okay. So she turned it on and we saw the heartbeat right away. That's um, awesome. so yeah. So the also feeling like, oh, first I really wanted him and now I'm really grateful for him. Um, and, uh, we went in for our 20 week scan and they had a really hard time measuring some things. Um, so a normal anatomy scan probably lasts about half an hour, depending on, um, how cooperative baby is. So he was not cooperative. He liked to be like his head under my ribs 
Hmm. And then all the way over to my left side. And he would like just kept turning away from the ultrasound as <laughs> she was trying to like measure him. He just not right. didn't like be disturbed. So the and then he would like kick. He would like get on his back and just like kick and kick and kick. So they couldn't like get a clear enough picture to measure anything. Right. Um, so it was like we were like laughing and it was all very lighthearted. And they're like, okay, well, we're gonna kick you up to level two ultrasounds, like a, a higher quality one. Um, there are some things that we measured that we were sure we just measured wrong, but let's go up to the higher quality and and see what we can see. And so it was at that appointment. And this was during COVID restrictions. So um, I was by myself mm. and I had taken just like the morning off of work. I had sent an, I'd sent an email and I was like, okay, I'll be in like probably by 11 at the latest. Um, so I like, I got in and they're doing the scan and it's like, 20 minutes and then it's 30 minutes and then it's 40 minutes and it's an hour and then it's an hour and 15 minutes. And I'm like, Oh, something's not right. Like this isn't right. The, and the ultrasound tech getting like more and more solemn. And, then, and Cause I'm, I'm still like worst case scenario. My baby has down syndrome, worst case scenario. Right. Uh, so that's fine. Like whatever, we'll figure that out. Um, but then she started telling me about like, uh, like her personal history with loss. And I was like, oh, thank you for sharing that with me. Like, I just thought she really liked me. So um, looking back, I think she was like, just trying to like prime me. You. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Cause they can't really say anything during the scans. Um, so I was like, oh, wow, this lady, that's kind of weird, but it's not so nice that she wanted to tell me that. Um, and uh, then the high risk doctor came in and he literally, he pulled out like a literal list of uh, congenital defects that they were seeing. Mm. So um, all of those led him to believe that he, Frankie had um, trisomy 18 or Edwards syndrome. And then we confirmed that with an amniocentesis where they just measure, they take out, they do big needle, take out some of the amniotic fluid and then they send it for genetic testing. So um, we did that and that was confirmed. And he also had another genetic condition called Kleinfelter, which isn't like a big deal usually. Um, but it, yeah, it was just bad. They, they, he basically in that meeting before I even had my amnio, he said, okay, um, what you need to decide now is how you want to spend your time. Right. And it was, I was by a, myself. It's a fatal, it's a fatal disease right or yeah. i don't even know if it's a disease yes. or just a, the, the defect it's, a, it's yeah. a genetic disorder so like some yeah. like right at conception the genes like start to like divide and grow and multiply mm -hmm. um but there was an extra like 18th chromosome right so the trisomy tri three and then 18 the 18th chromosome so it just basically means like it's different for different babies. So um, there are babies with and children with this disease who live to be five, six, seven, you know, 10. Mm -hmm. I think the oldest living person with trisomy 18 is like uh, just turned 18 or 19. Wow. So it is fairly, fairly life limiting. Yeah. Um, definitely usually fatal um, before birth. So, so yeah. So you get this news. I mean, and like you had literally just heard god in your eyes tell you yeah. like hey you guys should you guys should go for this yeah i mean what's how, i mean what what are your thoughts like right after you get that news yeah well at first it was crisis management right right so you know i had to 
tell my husband. I had to get somebody to pick up my kids from school. One was at daycare and one was at preschool. Like, so I, at first, and then it's like the waves of emotion start hitting and it's like, okay, I have to manage through this. So at first it was just management um, and come up, like kind of like trying to push it down so I could get all the information I needed. And um, once I was able to come up for air, beyond the devastation, just the absolute, absolute devastation was the so much anger like Mm. what the fuck right what like (laughs) are you kidding me um just disbelief and shock and i i do i I am still working through that disbelief of like how is this the plan if there's a plan why why is it this this sucks like yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know still how to really square that. I think I've come yeah. a long way, but yeah, it's just uh, big. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you said, absolutely devastating yeah. to have this news and then have it be like, you know, this was supposed to be the next thing for your family and then you just yeah. get just this huge anvil just dropped on an explosion in your life yeah but you guys it it feels like when you've told this story to me in the past yeah you were you were able to like you had the anger yeah but then you really celebrated frankie's life because yeah. it it wasn't typical yeah. And that was okay for you guys. Talk about like how you were able to come to that conclusion and, and what yeah. that meant. Yeah. So, yes, I, I think that um, the anger definitely there and it's still there. There are days where I'm just like, I don't, I don't get this. I don't understand it. Yeah. And I'm not okay not understanding it sometimes. You know, it's it's the not okay and the like relentlessness of death that is so difficult for me personally um but as far as frankie like that has nothing to do with him like he is himself good and worthy of my love and celebration because he's he that has nothing to do with him mm-hmm. like my my anger my disbelief my shock is not because he was different and not meant to live for very long his body was not formed to live and i thought we thought a lot about what kind of interventions we wanted to provide uh there we had every option and we had really really generous people donating to us like so that we could afford every option right um so we didn't i mean that burden was taken off of us that's not something everybody gets um and so, you know, people who have babies like Frankie f- move themselves across the country to get access to a doctor who will treat their child. Like, it's, it's, oh, it's mostly horrible. The, um, but, I, you know, we had all of our options and I spent a long time reading and listening and reaching out to people who had been in a similar situation. And it was a nurse, actually, who... I had posted in a like Facebook group and I was like, well, I'm looking into comfort care. And I just like, people just started like piling on about that. Um, like 
I think because they have to, so many have to advocate so much for their own child to have somebody Mm. say like, oh, I don't know that I'm going to provide any interventions feels like I'm harming their child. Mm, Interesting. Because I might be like reinforcing a belief about kids with disabilities, um, which is not what we were doing, (laughs) but the, um, so a nurse, she had, her daughter um, had trisomy 18 and was still living at the time, but she said, uh, you know, we've always done her care based on what we can do for her and not what we can do to her. Um, Yeah. That helped me reframe. And I think also my social work background of taking a lot of classes and, and practical application of end of life care. Yeah. What would I do for my aging parents? I wouldn't put them through every surgery and medication available to them. I'm not for like for what? Not because they don't deserve healthcare, but because like, what would that do for them? That doesn't do anything for them. And so, right. just a little more background about Frankie's disease is that it like it's a different in severity. He had a very severe presentation, so heart defect, um, some issues with brain development and formation, uh, highly susceptible to strokes, highly susceptible yeah. to seizures. And you knew this all before he was born, right? So you, yeah. you, were, you had been prepared. prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, as much as we could be. And we had like my my uh, my priest who was my boss originally. And then he got, he like, they switched parishes every couple of years. So he was at a different parish, but I reached out to him right away and he was like, well, what do you need? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm just trying to find, I need to know like what the chances are of surviving different surgeries, but they're so little and it's all behind paywalls. So like, I don't know. I'm just like, I just kind of like dumped a little bit on how frustrating that was. And he purchased some research articles for us and brought them to us so that we could have everything we needed to make decisions. And like, he came and he sat with us and he prayed with us. And like, I mean, he was working in Huntley and we're in Sycamore, Illinois. So that's, you know, for non-local listeners, that's like a good 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, and priests don't have time. They they are either at people's deathbeds or at the hospital or baptizing people or forming people doing spiritual direction like that. It's not like he had a free afternoon and was like, well, right. I think I'm going to do this today. Like he had to make time for that. So that was that was comforting. And I yeah. Anyway, I felt like I had all the information. And so like when we knew about his heart defects, that's going to be, we had a threshold. We said, okay, within the first year of life, if he needs three surgeries that we don't know that we could put a newborn through three different surgeries for an extension of life for two or three years. Right. Um, A lot of trisomy babies develop liver cancer, Hmm. liver kidney cancer. um, Around three or four, just because of the way that their bodies process everything um and so then we're looking at okay if he makes it to three or four high likelihood of chemo like i don't know that i would put my healthy children through that right if it was if i get if there's someone's looking at me and like my now six-year-old and they say okay she's got like three or four years we can do like for sure there's nothing else like everybody always wants to offer me another solution but let's for the thought experiment right like there's nothing else we can do but we could extend her life by a couple of years with chemo radiation lots of surgeries i absolutely would not do that i I would not do that to another person um especially my child it's my job to keep my kids safe and to 
Like I, I just couldn't, I, I often felt like I had to advocate for his like little body and his dignity. And I had to let him kind of tell us what he would be capable of withstanding. Um, so I, yeah, we felt very strongly about, um, my husband always did. He was always like, no, we'll just love him and then we'll let him go. Hmm. And so that was good for me. His, um, his mom had MS and it was very severe. And so he had a lot of experience with terminal uh, diseases and what that looks like. And he was a very good advocate for Frankie in that way. So yeah, once I was able to like settle on that, like, okay, we have the threshold, you know, then it was, it was easy to make those decisions once we got more and better information about him as he grew. Um, so he had, I went in every week for, um, ultrasounds and they could see like his heart defect wasn't quite as bad anymore. Um, fetal hearts are amazing. Uh, they grow and change all the time, even after, and then after birth, like an infant's heart is growing and changing. Um, it's so cool. So anyway, that was very cool to learn about that. Uh, but like he had, um, we suspected he had an esophageal atresia, which means your esophagus and your trachea are growing together. Mm. Um, and we were able to confirm that more at birth. So that would have been an immediate surgery um, because he couldn't get in nutrients. So there's a procedure right away. Second procedure right away would have been, you know, he didn't have a nasal canal and newborns need to breathe through their nose. Um, I feel like everybody does, but especially newborns, they can't do like mouth breathing. So I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have like their brains haven't like developed that ability yet so they can like get air in and out but they can't like regulate their like if i couldn't breathe because of a cold i'd be able to kind of breathe through my mouth for the most part um but infants newborns can't do that so that's an immediate surgery um and a big one to get a trach put in and to be on a vent um and my doctors were like we put kids on vents all the time it's fine and i was like yeah i hear you but that's now two big surgeries um, and then the third one, I don't even remember now, but, and like looking like, is that horrible that I can't really remember exactly how many he had a stroke, right. Um, a couple hours after he was born. Oh. Um, and so we're like, okay, well, there's another, um, there's another thing. We just can't put a person through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the loving thing for us and our situation was to just hold him and love him and let him go. And that wasn't, that had nothing to do with my relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Like I, and I can talk about how grief and death and my view of God and all of that, but for Frankie, like he's his own person. And so like his needs came before mine in that way. And his life still speaks in ours that way, just of how, how beautiful he was and yeah yeah how much we miss it yeah i mean i i first of all i just i can't imagine that level of trauma um i mean i've i've gone through loss you know recently but you know never to to that uh, i mean that that's so close to to who you are like it it like losing a child is i just can't i can't imagine it um, so first of all, thank you for talking about this. And second of all, 
I mean, talk talk about that that grief and that loss that you mentioned, because I mean, I think you have an yeah. interesting perspective on death. And you mentioned earlier that death is still something that you don't understand. So I'm interested in that intersection between like, how do we believe in God still? And also, yeah. how do we how do you still have this perception of who Frankie was, right? Like, how, like, we, we celebrate who he was, and that his body just wasn't built for this world. Mm-hmm. But also, we still believe in God, who yeah. told you to have this child, like, there's so many things that are coming together. How, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I um, I had a lot of very emotionally charged praying um a lot of like why are you doing this to me why would you take my child away from me like are you and then all the like the lies about that people share when they don't really understand their religion and like oh well you need this to like want to go to heaven that's something people think Mm -hmm. Um, so, okay, cool. So God is holding my child hostage and put us all through all this trauma. Like that's a bad dude. If that's what, happened. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. that's a real bad dude. So like I, and I had already kind of settled that question for myself about God's goodness. Mm-hmm. So I had that to stand on and like, okay, I can sit in that feeling and also know that that's not my experience of who God has been to me. So I think I can safely say that this isn't who God is. So God, um, God's you've already said God is good. Yeah. So there has to be another explanation. For, yes. With a why. Yes. And so I don't have to accept the, well, God wants to manipulate you into going mm. to heaven or belief. That doesn't sit right with me in any way. And especially at that time, that was just something people think they're being helpful and it isn't. So, um, yeah, I I think for me, I felt very like, I don't know how to say this without sounding crazy. Can we like suspend? <laughs> Can everyone just like get into my headspace? Yeah, maybe. Everybody, and it's gonna, yeah. take a deep breath and yeah. let's jump in. Yeah, you are now a person who thinks that God is good and loves him deeply. Right. Um, I felt in my prayer, a uh, very deep intimacy with especially like the person of Jesus. And I like felt the sorrow that he also had over the Mm. situation. Um, And the like, yeah, I know this sucks. Like, yes, this is horrible. And this is also why I tried to fix that. Mm. The part that is the worst is that my child is dying. That's the part. It's the separation. It's the never ending absence and it makes sense to me that that's the thing that god chose to fix by entering into death and by giving us a way out of it Mm. and i don't know why it's not done in a better and less traumatic way that would be great for me um yeah, I don't. I'm not like super happy that that this is where I'm. I'm not like, oh well, I have an explanation, so everything is good. Like I still feel the depth and the breadth and the intensity of my grief. I still feel that. I still feel the disbelief at death and the anger, but I have that hope in the way that I've experienced the person of God 
And that makes sense to me, that God who is always been a bit of a mystery to me as a figure. I don't really understand why things are the way they are, but that he would come alongside me and sit next to me and say, absolutely, this is awful, but I'm not holding your child hostage from you. I rescued him and Mm -hmm. we can all like, this can be fixed. This is a fixable problem. But is that fix enough for me? Is that enough for me to accept? That's the question I had to wrestle with. Right. That to me is the gospel. And do I accept that? Is that going to be enough for me in the face of my child's death? Because I didn't just stake my own life on it. I have to stake my child's life on it. Right. And so that's not something that I took lightly. And so I thought about it a lot and wrestled with it and prayed with it. And I have come to that space, even though the grief and the pain still persists. I talked, I wrote a little bit about this when we were doing, we started a caring bridge to do updates and then it turned out there weren't any really good medical updates to give. So I just started like, kind of like just reflected for people. So no one would text me or call me and I could just kind of be by myself. Yeah. Um, It's easier. Yeah. It was way easier. Um, we got his casket. Um, Early on, I didn't know how long I would be pregnant for. Um, There's a lot to consider there. My health, um, there's a huge risk of preeclampsia for me is what they said with that pregnancy. I didn't have it for any other ones, but um, just with the way my body was trying to process, like just the whole thing. We were both very sick. We were very, very sick. Um, So we went pretty early on, probably like second trimester. And well, the whole thing was second trimester. Oh my gosh. It feels like it was a million years. Before third trimester, when I still felt safe traveling, we went um, out to Dubuque, Iowa. There's a monastery there. They provide free caskets um, for people who've lost a child or who will lose a child. Um, Yeah. And they deliver them. They don't make you go and get them. But I really wanted to go and get it. You know, I couldn't buy him clothes. I couldn't um, look at a new crib. But I could get his casket. So. We went and we got it. Uh, we went, all four of us, we took the kids and we were trying to ease them into the fact that they wouldn't have a baby at home. And so we talked a lot about death and we had, they went with us to get the casket. We looked at it. The people there were super nice. They gave us um, a little like cross with his name on it and there's a matching one on his casket. So like we have that. Um, and I remember like the day before my induction, I was induced and then ended up with the C-section, but I was standing and the last thing I had to do was drop off the casket at the funeral home because we had coordinated that our like um, palliative care team was going to contact the funeral home when we were ready to leave and um, come and get his body. Um, So we wouldn't have to really sit to the morgue um, at the hospital. So we could all like kind of leave at the same time. Right. (laughs) So we dropped the casket off because I didn't want to have to think about it afterwards. And um, we just spent some time looking at it. And we open it up and I expected that to be like the hardest part for me, but it, I felt so much peace and hope just like looking at it and touching it. And I can't explain that. That's not for me. That's not for my brain. My brain doesn't do that. My brain is way more primed for catastrophe and sadness. So like, I know that's not for me. I think that was the presence of God 
promising that that wouldn't be the last place he was. Right. That's so, that's, yeah. Being able to make me cry. God damn it. Sorry. <laughs> um, it's very sad. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's it awful. really terrible. Yeah. Um, I, I do think as, as somebody that, you know, isn't, doesn't have faith in a thing that I can't imagine the comfort that that would bring, yeah. you know, you and your family to say like, this is not, this is not the final thing. Like they're just going to be in heaven. You know, he's yeah. like, we're going to, we're going to be taking care of him. Um, I can't imagine the peace that that, that must've felt. And the, the wherewithal that you have within your own faith, to collect that like to to let your brain like even go in that direction yeah. um that's those that's the beautiful part about like religion and yeah. um believing in something um i don't know i don't know how you do it um you're a pretty strong woman um not pretty strong you're very strong um how how do you so how do you talk to, you said you talked about you know with your kids and preparing yeah. them to not have a have a baby but now that you know Frankie has has passed, yeah. Do do they ask about him? Is it is it something that like you guys had talked about? Like, hey, is it always going to be your your little brother going to be around? You know, in, in yeah. some form or fashion. Like, what what's that look like talking to a kid when you're yeah. also going through your own oh, trauma gosh. of losing a child? Yeah, uh, we had. Uh, there's something called a child life specialist that most hospitals have. Um, that's also a social, social work position for people looking to get into social work. That's a great one. Um, they provided us some resources and they helped us. They gave us some books. And then we also had um, an organization called Able Speaks. Uh, they had a son with a trisomy 18 like four or five years ago. And so they um, maybe even longer than that now, but they provide a lot of resources for families who are caring to term um, and even after death, they give, they gave us this great book and like all these keepsake items. And like, so we had a lot of support in that way. Um, we, they loved him. They were so connected to my pregnancy. Um, especially my second Gus, he was like, and like the baby really responded to them. They would come and talk to my stomach and he would kick only for them. Usually didn't kick for anybody else. Um, when he was born, they were able to come and see him. The hospital was so, so good to us. So good to us. And so it was 10 o'clock at night and they were all in the I had just had a C-section and I was on every drug imaginable. So I was like, right. sections are great. Everyone should have a baby like this. I feel amazing. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> which changed obviously when the drugs were off, but right. The, um, so we were all in the recovery room and that's, you're not supposed to have people in there um, at all. And especially during like COVID restrictions sure. for hospitals. And, um, but we had all been vaccinated at that time, except for the kids. So I think they're a little, um, they, the kids just didn't have one yet. That was before mm -hmm. that was available. And um, anyway, they had a, we like celebrated we they held him he would turn his head and like when they would talk like he recognized their voices still um so there's a real relationship there that still persists they talk about him all the time this morning actually gus said he woke up really early and he was like can you sit next to me and i was like yeah absolutely he's like okay can you show me a video of frankie 
and we only have one really yeah but he so we watched it together a couple times and he was like i'm so glad you have this like they yeah like they were so young they were two and three um almost three and four so they turned three and four that summer and so like he like he's just a big part of our lives we have his picture everywhere um we have a really like a giant picture of all four kids um hanging in our dining room and he's just part of us yeah i'm amazed by that i'm amazed by the way love persists um you know even through death and in spite of death mm-hmm. you know that's really cool yeah we're connected still we all are i do think it's 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 interesting for for parents that have lost like a newborn child like i i know like i've some close friends that had you know, had lost um, a little one like yeah. very early on as well. And people get uncomfortable talking about that infant who passed away, but we sh- at the same time, like parents want to talk about them, right? Like you, you've told me that you love talking about them. Like you love the opportunity to to do that. Um, what, like, do, do you feel like you got the support from people early on like after it of of giving you the space to be able to deal with this trauma in a way that was helpful for you and that also allowed you to be able to talk about frankie openly yeah i think sometimes like i you know people supported us in every way imaginable like took our garbage out made us food you know gave us the financial means that we could rest and grieve together um that was amazing and important and a huge part of that i think is just like acknowledge that but during his life that was all very present and then after his death i think people are afraid to talk about it i have um a couple of friends who are really really open with me like hey i was thinking about frankie the other day mm. um you know i just love him so much like that is so important to me um one of my really good friends had a baby on frankie's original due date oh wow um, the same year so we were pregnant together for most of that and like so frankie was born on june 2nd and then her daughter was born on his original due date which was june 21st um and she always 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 would come whenever we were near each other or she was thinking about me she would send me a picture of the baby she would just drop her daughter in my arms all the time like um like here hold the baby like here feed the baby like so i had that like physical comfort of a newborn who is the same right. like gestational age um as my child and like that was really helpful because it was just like the silent ways that people help are still there and present and helpful um and there are a few who were brave enough and who had the like knowledge enough to ask really good questions and i still have friends who will do that be like oh tell me about how is this now like how was it then how did this help you like do you want to talk about this like there are definitely people who are like that I think the majority of people don't want to upset me. They don't want to say anything, Um, which is a little silly to me because like, it's not like I forgot. Like, (laughs) it's not like, it's not like I'm just like, oh yeah, that was really awful when that happened. Oh, well. Yeah. There was, there was something traumatic there. Yeah. 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 I forgot about that kid. No. I mean, he's still, he was just always with me, you know? And then, yeah wasn't and that's hard to make sense of so it is really helpful when people remember him and like bring him up to me it helps be like 
remember that that is real and it's okay for me to want to talk about it, I guess. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't want to generalize here and say that every parent want that, wants that, but you know, I, I feel like it's good for people to hear that coming from yeah. someone that has lost a child. Like if you know somebody that has gone through that, like maybe it, it wouldn't hurt to reach out and say like, Hey, you know, yeah, thinking about, thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for, for you, like what's next in your faith journey? Like, are you still, are you still sh- struggling with it's probably a part of you that will always struggle with the why behind it, right? But generally, where where do you think it's going to take you? Like, do you feel like you'll always be a part of the Catholic Church? Do you feel like mm-hmm. you'll always have God in your life? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I can't unknow God. I'm sure some people can. I can't. I can't mm-hmm. unknow God. I can't unknow. I can't unexperience what I've experienced. Um. And I really don't want to speak for other people. That is really just me. Like I I can't forget those things. I, and I've had like other like spiritual experiences too, that like we don't really need to get into because also they sound insane. Um, So I don't really share them, but the like, uh, I do, I, I, especially like, no, like having used the DSM and like, like the manual for like mental health, like diagnostics. And like, sometimes I'm like, "Hmm, am I insane? Am I hallucinating? What is yeah. happening to me? You're too uh, close so to the information. Yeah. I am. I have too I have too much. I have way too much information. Always. So I think I will always know and, and love God. And I know that He loves me and I'm I don't understand. I don't understand suffering. Um I understand my suffering. I don't understand general. You know, I know what it is, maybe, but I don't understand it fully. And I'm still learning about that um, and how it shapes everything in my worldview. And like, I I would never look at another person and say like, well, you could just like believe through your suffering because I felt like I was being tortured for 17 weeks while I was yeah. pregnant. Right. And I still feel this like intense pain and I don't want like I don't expect anybody to do anything when they're feeling those things. Like just lay in bed, don't go anywhere. Um, so if you need to take a break from religion, go for it. Um, but for me, it's been such a source of comfort and to be without Frankie now is, is the worst. Um, but to be without him forever is, I don't think I would survive that. Mm. So for me, I'm grateful. I would do things differently, maybe if I were in charge, but sure. I'm not. So <laughs> this is what I have. And I am grateful for what I have some days better than others. Well, I, like I said, I, I, I think you and your, your husband are so incredibly strong um, just to be able to not only navigate your own faith and your own feelings, but your family is like having, having two kids along with that. Like I just, can't imagine the the stress and the trauma that comes along with that. So, um, I, I just, you know, I thank you for sharing the story of, of Frankie and, and coming on and talking about it. Um, my wife always asked me to ask this question at the end. What didn't we talk about that you wanted to share? Hmm. I don't know. I think I just, I know I've said it a million times now, probably, but like, I don't, 
I don't expect other people to experience things the same way I have. And so like, if there's anything I've said that is just not hitting well, like just ignore it. Like I, just ignore that. Like I'm not trying to like speak into another person's experience, just sharing mine, you know? And so like, I just want to make that abundantly clear, especially if there are like other Catholics listening to this, that can get very complicated for people, um, for people who are maybe more devout than I am. You know, I'm sorry if I did anything wrong. That made you mad. Uh, Sorry. Uh, Like, you know, this, those addendums of like, I'm just doing my best and sometimes I'm wrong about stuff. So I'm sorry if that hurts anybody. Um, And also I've remembered to, we talked about it the first time maybe, but I remembered to bring it this time, this book. Oh yeah. By Nicholas Wolterstorff. That's a weird one, but this is my like all time favorite grief book. I've read a lot of them. Most of them are horrible and not helpful. Uh, but that one, especially as it relates to faith, um, he just tries to make sense of his son's death. And there's a line in there that has really like, just having language for what I'm feeling has been really important. Um, there's a line he has of like, you know, he's talking about his son died like very suddenly and as an adult. So it's a little different for me, but like, he says, I don't know why God would watch me wounded and I cannot even guess. Mm. And like. Uh, yeah, I don't know why. And I can't even guess as to why I, I can't even guess. And so part of me is still very hurt by that. But yeah, I don't know. I know he loves me. That's that's kind of the the contradiction that is probably tough to to square because that. Yeah. yeah, that quote hits right like that's yeah, that's pretty heavy. Um, well. Katie, thank you so much for doing this for a third yeah. time. Uh, and I feel <laughs> like this is our this is our best conversation yet. So I, I think oh, we good. Just, maybe we just needed the practice. Um, yeah, I think not so. the other ones weren't great, but this one, wow. this one like this one like really killed it. You know, yeah, it's more articulate this time. I think that helps. <laughs> no, I don't think you were more articulate. You just you know, I I maybe maybe it was just like the morning. Like we're we're both drinking coffee. Yeah. We got caffeine yeah. in us now. Maybe that, maybe that's what it was, but. Um, I wish all the best for you and your family. Thank you again for, for coming on and talking and, um, I'll hopefully see it. We got pumpkin fest coming yeah. out. So we can see you around pumpkin fest in Sycamore. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you will. I'll be running after children who are. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'll look for the, the lady just <laughs> running down the street. Yeah. Yelling. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Katie. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I again want to extend a very heartfelt thank you to Katie for coming on and sharing Frankie's story, talking about her struggles with faith, anxiety, depression, death, I thought was such a really impactful conversation. So thank you to her and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.